to John chapter 5, and we'll be reading from verse 1 up to verse 29, uh, if you'd like to follow along. So that's from John chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, And I, too, am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear 
will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. I'll invite Jeff forward to bring us the message this morning, and as he does that, let me just pray for him. Loving God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life and ministry of Jesus and the way that it still speaks and ministers to us today. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear as you speak to us this morning. And Lord, would you fill Jeff with your spirit. May his words be your words. We pray that the meditation of his mouth and of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and redeemer. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Well, let me add my uh, uh, pleasure to uh, have this opportunity to open God's Word. All is well. Uh, and on behalf of Kay, my wife and I, uh, thank you for the warmth of welcome that we've had over these weeks, even if you've been meeting with uh, what you presume to be my electronic image. Uh, we've been happy to, uh, to meet as many of you as uh, we have so far and hopefully uh, catch up today and other times to uh, meet you as well. We're continuing with our series in uh, John 5 here. Seem to have a wobbly thing uh, there, that's a bit better. Um, and uh, like these other passages that we've been looking at, uh, we see Jesus basically turn a corner in this story from the other weeks that we've been looking at where he has had some confrontation with, in chapter 3, with Nicodemus, a scribe, a scribal religion, uh, you could say a sectarian religion in, with the Samaritans last uh, week, and today there are two other sorts of religion that Jesus locks horns with, the, uh, the superstitious popular religion and, uh, if I could keep playing with the word, letter S, the sacerdotal temple religion. And uh, this is uh, what this scene is about. Now, what we're going to notice over these weeks is that whenever Jesus speaks, uh, does a miracle and a sign in John, it provokes a uh, controversy and a debate or a discussion of some sort. And, and we've got to link those two things together. They, they don't make a lot of sense separately. And uh, we'll see that again this week. John begins this passage by creating the scene. In fact, he's given five or six verses describing this scene for us, which tells us immediately that to understand the situation is important as we uh, look at this story. And we're taken into this uh, part of Jerusalem during one of the Jewish festivals. It's not Passover, we don't think. Could have been Pentecost. And uh, we know that during festival time, the population of Jerusalem just swelled enormously, probably threefold. Uh, it wasn't a lot of elbow room. <clears throat> but in, in this particular part on the Temple Mount, there is this, uh, this section where we're told it's a sheep gate 
called Bethesda or Bethsaida, in which it's surrounded by five basic colonnades. And there's a pool there. That's a fascinating scene. And in front of this pool, there are a whole lot of disabled people. It's an incredible contrast that John is drawing. You've got this highbrow festival of the Jews happening on the one hand, pomp and pageantry and a, a well-drilled liturgy that's being worked out through the festival. And, but this is the backstory. And here in the shadows is another picture of another sort of Israel. And it's a, it's a sad picture of wall-to-wall impotence. Uh, these are the trailings of Israel, if, as you'd like, if you like. Humanity at its most impotent. Uh, so you've got the high point of the feast, but this low point picture of humanity in this, in this scene. Now, sadly, there is a, a superstition that has arisen, and some of the uh, older versions had a, a, some later text that was added in that this superstition had arisen that this pool around which these paralytics lay and the blind gathered, uh, that an angel of the Lord would disturb the waters and the first in, first served principle operated here, that if you got in first, you would be healed. Now, that's probably just based on superstition. Uh, we know archaeologists have told us that... Um, there was plumbing that connected the main temple area down to this pool underground. Uh, and uh, the, the place where the vestments of the priests were washed in the temple, uh, that, that water would end up in this pool and probably the bubbling up was simply someone turning on the tap upstairs that was happening here. And, but a superstition had arisen nonetheless but there's no way that this experiment could be invalidated. The, there was no way to know that this uh, miracle was occurring. I mean, the blind couldn't attest to it. Uh, the lame would be struggling with their aides, whoever they were, to, to get into the pool. There was no way to know whether you were first anyway. And if you weren't healed, well, bad luck. Now, that's the astonishing thing. And, and along with that, there was also passages in scripture like the prophet Ezekiel had spoken about he had this stylized picture of the temple in chapter 47 of Ezekiel uh, where from the temple the the rivers of the Holy Spirit would flow out and uh, you know a couple of chain lengths down they'd be as high as a horse's bridle and there was this idea there that so all that fed the 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 uh, evocative feel about this this particular pool around which these poor uh, dregs of humanity gathered year in year out it may have actually begun as a joke to uh, you know throw a stone into the pebble and watch all these people leap in for no effect but uh, this had become really a fixated issue for this one particular bloke that we read about had been there for 38 years now, that's a long time. You know, maybe a lot of his family had, had died. Life expectancy wasn't that much in these days. 50 years was a good trot. And he's been there 38 years. You can imagine a family member having to care for that fellow and occasionally 
lump him into this pool or tip him out of his stretcher on the hope, the vain hope, that he would be healed. Year in, year out, I think after a couple of years, uh, it'd be hard to get volunteers for that ministry. And yet, that's uh, what he had been doing. Without any sense of encouragement, without any hope. But I think what, what we've got here is a wonderful picture of what the psychologists call cognitive dissonance. That this guy, the, the, the less reinforcement he had, the stronger he held to that hope. And it was, he was gripped by it as much as he gripped it. He'd probably burnt out his family and his friends by now. And, uh, but he would have had to have sufficient means of support to be able to live like that. It's interesting that uh, some commentators point out that this 38 years is also the, the same length of time that Deuteronomy tells us that Israel was wandering around the wilderness. Now, we know that Jesus has this habit of, dis- of deliberately gathering stage props to do his signs, which, as we saw a few weeks ago, are really like enacted parables. He sort of sets the scene by pulling together the materials that are just there in front of him. And I think that's, this is what he is doing here at the high point of the feast. He goes to this part of the world, the sheep gate, and I should have told you also that that's also the pool in which sheep were dipped on their way to sacrifice, to cleanse them. So this is not, this is not the Jerusalem Hilton there aren't people sitting around on sun lounges being served cocktails here. It's a rather grimy scene. You know, it's quite the opposite. Uh, and Jesus decides to use this. And I think there's a statement here about how Jesus sees Israel. They may see themselves now having the freedom to express Judaism in the temple. The Romans have granted that. They might think that nothing could be better but when Jesus evaluates Judaism of his day, he is saying that actually they're pathetic and impotent. It couldn't be sicker. They're helpless. And that's really what he's getting at. And then Jesus himself provokes this sign. In verse 6, he goes up to this character. He's chosen him out of this seething crowd of helplessness, knowing he's been there for a long time, somehow or other, And he goes up and he asks him the question, do you want to get well? That's an incredible question. I mean, the fellow's sitting there, why why am I by the pool? I mean, you know, it's starkly obvious why I am here. But Jesus asks that question because he doesn't want to ram over that guy's dignity. The fellow is already disempowered and Jesus could easily just have come through and healed him. But he deliberately asks for permission. Do you want to get well? It's a good question because this fellow has forged an identity over 38 years of being a victim. He gets a lot of kudos from that. He gets a lot of sympathy. It is now his identity. It's his life story. There isn't another story to come. This guy is a victim. And Jesus is really asking him, are you ready to give up 
all that comes as a gain with being that victim. He cannot do both, be a victor and a victim. You cannot change your lot while you want to talk about how unfair life has been to you. That is just impossible. So Jesus refuses to jump into a pool of pity to help this guy. That's not going to help anyone. You know, sometimes we think of people that uh, feel unloved that more love is what will cure them. But in fact, we can be getting them addicted to love and lovelessness at the same time. It doesn't actually change them. Resilience is what changes people. So Jesus, at that point, gives this fellow a threefold command, literally rise up, take up your mat and walk. Walk around, get going. Now, who knows what happened? But something in this fellow, right at that minute, he knew something had changed. Thinking of John 4 and the woman at the well, he now feels the wellsprings of life are not in the pool, but they're within him. And he feels that he has capacities and he, he just takes up his mat and he's out of there. And Jesus, we are told, did this in this immediate curing uh, on the Sabbath. That is obviously a deliberate ploy by Jesus. He could have come the previous day or he could have come the next day, but he comes on the Sabbath day. And not just a Sabbath day, but a festival Sabbath day, a high Sabbath. And this is where Jesus is deliberately being provocative. This is the parable in 3D that he's working out for all with eyes to see. And this is the way Israel will have a future. The way Israel will get off the mat will be through the direct obedience to his word. There's his message for all to see. Well, it would have been an incredible sight coming through the, uh, the pool and then the, the fellow, first thing he does, he, he would have been head and shoulders above all the lame and the blind this fellow that everyone would have known instantaneously. And the first thing he does is he goes to church. He goes up to the temple. He wants to mix with the festivities. This is the high point. This is what he's looking. He's now one of the boys. He's a real citizen of Jerusalem. And so he heads off, and no sooner is he somewhere in the temple, so conspicuously, that the Jewish leaders in verse 10 confront him. And they say, <clears throat> hold on, hold on, hold on. This is the Sabbath. You can't carry your sun lounge on a Sabbath. This is forbidden. This is taboo. And uh, <clears throat> immediately they've got him on three charges. It's the Sabbath. Uh, and we've got one, and it's a festival Sabbath, and he's doing it in the Holy of Holies, or close to the Holy of Holies. He's doing it in God's temple. This is the holiest part of the planet. God resides in the temple, according to this high temple religion. How can you flagrantly breach the Sabbath? This could bring down the wrath of God. Just a few words about the Sabbath. Like this, 
command of God that was in the law that separated out Israel from the nations. By the time we're writing, while John is writing this, the, the OCD brigade had really added so much to the Sabbath. They'd made it an interpretive principle. They added case law after case law. So what does it mean to work on the Sabbath, according to the Jews? Well, you're not allowed to carry anything on the Sabbath, so, you know, well, how much can you carry is the question. Well, uh, you can carry an amount of parchment, about as big as two postage stamps, but not if it's got something written on it. Oh, uh, well, what, uh, you know, you, you weren't allowed to wear a coat with a brooch on the Sabbath. Your horse wasn't allowed to have a blanket on it on the Sabbath. You know, it just went on. And by writing case law, they're actually trying to help with certainty. There would be no stone unturned, no case that wasn't covered by the teaching of the rabbis. And here, this fellow is walking around in this highly uh, rarefied uh, world of Sabbath violation where you don't stand on the lines of Sabbath and effectively with his, his stretcher over his shoulder. So he, he may as well have worn a placard and walked around, you know, Moses is rubbish, and, uh, you know, it would have drawn just as much uh, attention. But uh, this is very basic. And so as soon as he's confronted, you notice what he does? In verse 11, he backpedals. Basically, it's the only, I was only following orders defence. You know, um, the guy who did this to me said it. I had to do it. I had no other option. And they say, well, who was it? Now, this Sabbath violation is so, so blatant. This man really stood in a very precarious situation. We can have a little bit of sympathy for that. But uh, they suspect, I think, already that it's Jesus that's done this. He's already caused a bit of a stir. And they just want the name. Just give us the name. They're treating this guy as a hostile witness. Because Nicodemus has been to visit Jesus and he wasn't able to turn up any dirt on him. Uh, and this, if this is the same Jesus, well, we've got him for working on the Sabbath. Um, <clears throat> but Jesus has managed to uh, slip away into the crowd, which is an easy thing to do. But it's a deliberate thing that he does. And it's not cowardice on Jesus' part. It's that he has unfinished business. Now, isn't it incredible that they see this fellow, they see that obviously an incredible intervention of God has happened with this fellow, but they have such myopic vision that all they can see is a violation of Torah, of the law of God, and a blatant one at that. Not for a second are they diverted into asking an obvious question about my goodness, what has happened in our midst? Who could this be? Maybe this is the prophet we're to expect. Not for a moment do they consider that. They just basically are out to get the violator, the real violator, who is the one who has given this guy the command. We're then taken to another scene in verse 14 where Jesus now finds the fellow in the temple... And uh, he, he, he locates him. And this is really part two of the same miracle. And he gives the fellow a little bit of a heavy sermon here. You know, he, he doesn't say to him, hey, what's it like having legs again? You know, is it good to be one of the boys? 
the citizen of Jerusalem. How's it feel? No, he actually gives him a warning. It's a heavy word. Now, this fellow who's just enjoying being a citizen of Zion again and getting stuck into the ceremony is basically told to stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Isn't that phenomenal? He says, sin no more. And you'd sort of think to yourself, well, you know, what sin could a guy, a paralytic, on a stretcher commit in 38 years? But it may not be the sins of action, of commission. It can be the sins of the spirit, a brooding spirit. This fellow could have had, and we'll see, deep flaws of character and utter selfishness. So Jesus sees that there is something worse that can happen than infirmity. And he's confronting this bloke with the fact that the real issue he's got to deal with, which is far more important than his paralysis, is where he stands before his God. That's far more critical, the flaws of character, than the flaws of a body. Now, just a little diversion here, if I may make a comment. There's a lot of interest, has been for many decades, in the issue of healing. You know, a lot of people trot out the mantra, God heals today, as if this passage is teaching that Jesus can heal anyone. But I don't think that's John's concern. I think he's got far bigger fish to fry than that particular one. Because healing is not salvation. Healing does not change your status with God or your eternal destiny. What you do with sin, that affects your destiny. Your softness of heart to the convicting voice of God, that determines your destiny. You know, we are not safe from God, and in fact, if we have experienced divine intervention in our life of some sort, then more grace means more responsibility, not less, for our sin. We might have a healed hand, but if that fist is held in the face of God, then it may as well still be unhealed. It's far worse. There's something far worse than 38 years of paralysis, and that's an eternity without God's blessing. So isn't it astonishing? There's something missing here. This fellow basically... Immediately, we read in verse 15, he goes away and he tells the authorities, because he hasn't even thought to ask until this moment, he hasn't thought to ask Jesus who he is or why he's done what he does. He just wants to get the authorities off his back and save his own skin. He runs and tells them, hey, I've got the name. I know who it was who gave me that bogus command. Jesus was his name. And that's what he does. That's the sort of character we're dealing with here. There's something totally missing here, isn't it? This guy is the ultimate ingrate. He's only interested in his own skin. There's not a moment where he pauses to say, well, thank God I have been dealt an incredible blessing out of all the people. He chose me. It doesn't come to him. 
You see, that's the picture, that's the height of his ambition. The best thing in his life that he can think about is being socially included again. Being one of the boys, being accepted, being a man. That's as much and as high as he aspires. And basically he seals his fate at that point by choosing the approval of men over the justification of God. He thinks he has liberty. In fact, he's paralysed by his fear of men still. But isn't that an interesting picture of Jesus? That Jesus himself, this is the touchstone of his ministry. This bears a very characteristic of the way Jesus ministers. At this point, by doing this provocative act, he has sealed his fate. He is going to run headlong into these authorities. He is uh, blatantly at odds with their interpretation of the law. But it's, it's a matter that Jesus is sort of saying, well, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down blessing. He seals his fate by blessing someone who is not returning the gratitude. Well, at this time, we read in verse 16 that because Jesus was doing this sort of thing, it seems like there were a few things happening here, on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now, I don't think that's really what John is getting at. The same word is the word prosecute him. The Jewish leaders were actually aiming to capture Jesus legally, to prosecute him and to have enough evidence to do it. This, uh, this confrontation that happens here right now is more like an arraignment hearing where they are gathering evidence for a later prosecution. And Jesus decides to defend himself and he says, my father is always at his work to this very day and so that I am too am working. My father is working, so I'm working. And all the way through, this is his fundamental thesis in the rest of the chapter, that what the father is doing, I'm doing. You can't pull us apart. Now, it might sound like Jesus is shifting the blame, but he's playing off that issue of work. See, their, their problem is that they see that the Sabbath was when God ceased from creation, and that's why they're so heavy about it. They, he ceased from his work of creation. But Jesus is saying, well, there's another work that's been going on. Even your own rabbis would tell you that the sustaining of the work of the omnipresent God has been going on, but now recreation is going on. We've been working towards another end. The Father is working I'm working. And I think as soon as he said that, they would have been having conniptions. It would have just thrown them into a friend. They couldn't believe their ears. Like this guy, uh, is, we knew he was a Sabbath violator, but now he is claiming equality with the fatherhood of God. Jehovah's Witnesses, read that verse, please. This guy is just sealed his fate. No need to ask any more questions. And we read in uh, verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Basically, I think right at that moment, this, this uh, seemingly uh, prosecution uh, team that were the Torah police who were out there becomes a lynch mob. And if they had stoned Jesus right that minute, 
not many people would have asked many questions. They would have been, uh, you know, <clears throat> forgiven for taking such a process. But Jesus sees their face, he reads their lips, he, and uh, he reads their, their mood, and then on his lips he says, verse 19, Very truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what the Father is doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. You know, blame it on permissive parenting. This is, this is how I'm, I'm acting. It's only something I've picked up from my heavenly Father. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. And uh, so Jesus basically begins laying out a, his case you know, if you, by saying truly, truly, or very truly, Jesus is basically saying, well, you know, I'll give you something for your Hansard. Read my lips. Take this down. You may quote me. This is not something that Jesus says uh, mindlessly. And he begins his, his defense. He summarizes his case. He unpacks this single premise that when I'm doing something, the Father is doing that something. So you can see what he's really getting at, that if you're going to blame me for this Sabbath violation, you should be blaming the Father. He orchestrated this whole thing. I'm only following orders. I'm only doing what I normally do, which I've learnt from my heavenly home, and it was the father who found this fellow in this state and it was the father who instigated this healing. So if you've got problems with me, you've got problems with the father. That's where Jesus is driving. <clears throat> so that's his immediate purpose, to point out that this demonstration, this violation was of the father. But then he unpacks it even further about two particular functions that the father and he share in verses 20 to 23 he says for the father loves the son and shows him all he does yes and he'll show him even greater works than these so that you might be amazed you think you've seen something today you haven't seen anything yet is what jesus is saying for as the father raises the dead and gives them life even the, so the Son gives life to those whom he gives it. He's pleased to give it. So you can see that when Jesus commands this man to rise up, that's a picture of the fact that the Son will raise up us on the resurrection. It's the same sort of deed. The Father is involved in both. And moreover, secondly, you know that I was involved in a, a little spirit spiel with this guy about judgment well judgment's also something that the father doesn't hold back from the son he's entrusted judgment to the son you see both components of this miracle are telling you something about the father and the son both raising up and judging that all might honor the son did you get that just to take this down this is choice you'll enjoy this all might honour the Son as they honour the Father. Do you think their ears were burning right at that moment? Whoever doesn't honour the Son doesn't honour the Father who sent him. That's uh, an imprimatur worth noticing. That Jesus is saying, 
the way you are so sensitive for the honour of God, you should be just as sensitive about honouring me. The same respect that you accord to the God of Israel is the have you ever, can you imagine what it is like for Jews to be spoken to like that and for that to be said to them? That this man standing before them, prophet though he may be, healer though he obviously is, is claiming to be son of the Father and to get the same respect that is due the Father. That's an incredible thing to ask. But Jesus doesn't stop there. You know, he then says, very truly, the second time he said it, mark my words, I tell you, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him, you see how both parties of the Trinity are involved in here? This is the beginning of what later is called the doctrine of interpenetration of the persons. The Father, who hears the Father, who hears my word and believes him, the Father who sent me, has eternal life, and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. That's an unbelievable statement. Jesus is basically saying, you just hear my commands, respond to them in faith, believing that the Father has sent me, and your status in eternity is sealed that moment. You see the, the tense of the word? Has eternal life, just a little grammar test here, is that past tense, is it present tense, is it future tense? If I say you have eternal life or he has eternal life, past, present or future, put you out of your misery? It's present tense, isn't it? He has it presently. And that's the thing for each Christian sitting here this morning, that moment in life when you suddenly said to yourself in the quietness of your thoughts and you directed those thoughts to God and you said, I trust you in some way, shape or form. Doesn't matter if it was over a long process, doesn't matter if it was an instantaneous process, but at that point, your destiny was sealed, not might be sealed. He has eternal life. Eternal life comes in bulky quantities. How long is eternal? It never ends. That's the amazing thing that a believer has this very morning. That your destiny is sealed. And we cannot meditate upon that too much. We cannot let that thought slip from us. You know, that uh, verse, I was going to tell uh, uh, a story at the end, but uh, I'll divert it here. My own father came to the Lord hearing that verse and that verse alone the very first time he heard it. And uh, the situation was that uh, he was a Port Melbourne boy in the uh, early 1950s a plumber's apprentice in Port Melbourne. But uh, he didn't realise that he had a, an extraordinary gift. It hadn't been picked up at school. He'd done okay at school. In fact, he'd actually won a radio quiz competition at 19. Um, and uh, when he won that, his nickname became The Professor. And uh, he, he was called The Professor or The Profess uh, all around Port Melbourne. And my dad was a... a, a um, 
doing his plumbing apprenticeship and going to South Melbourne Tech during the day. And, um, and one day, he, he used to be a gambler. So he used to roll up to this particular poker den uh, in, uh, not just around the corner from where he lived, and uh, it was filled with uh, basically criminals and stevedoring industry people and uh, some of the most notorious criminals that uh, the previous generation would know, like Putty Nose Nichols and others, and uh, we used to lose their hard-earned cash in this particular thing. But my dad actually had an incredible mathematical gift. You know, he used to lie in, in bed and try and work out quick ways to work out the square root of seven and thought other people did that, and, uh, but they didn't. But this particular day, uh, he used to begin gambling on a, on a Saturday afternoon, gamble right through night, and uh, then Sunday, grab a couple of hours sleep and uh, then head home and sleep until the month. And every, every weekend he would come home with a roll of notes because he'd, he'd worked out by the laws of probability, he didn't know it was called the laws of probability, but he worked out who, which tables to play on and who were the dodgy uh, dealers and who to keep away from. And he never took a risk that was too great. He played conservatively, and so the longer he played, he had to win, he had to beat the house. And every weekend, that was how he spent his time, uh, especially during the summer months. He'd go home and he'd give his mum a couple of notes off the top for board and was gradually building a stash. If he'd kept doing that, probably it would have been the end of his life. And this particular day, Sunday afternoon, he's having a break and he's out in the street playing cricket up against a post with his, his brother and a couple of others just as a break during the game. And around the corner... Uh, in this little cul-de-sac where, where he lived, this um, came a couple of Melbourne Bible Institute stu- students who were doing street evangelism. And um, they found this couple of blokes playing cricket, he, his older brother Jack, uh, who was a returned serviceman. And uh, both, both of them uh, were stopped and confronted by these guys who asked them whether they believed in the Bible. And uh, my dad had a mouthful of excuses about churches being full of hypocrites and the usual stuff and the Bible full of errors. And he'd read well and, and he, he was going to give as good as he got, and as was his brother. And the one fellow said, well, do you believe the, the New Testament? And dad had been to Sunday school once in his life where they pointed out there were two, the old and the new. And he had the impression that somehow the new was better. And he said, yes. The fellow said, well, I want to read to you something out of the New Testament. And he read this verse. This verse about the fact that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Has eternal life. As these words were read, my father had the paralytic experience of finding something bubbling up within him that told him these were true. And he realised God had found him in the midst of nothing, in an empty life. Well, this particular fellow said to him, how certain are you of this? And he said, these are the words of God, I trust them. 
How much do you trust them? Well, it's either or, it's black or white. You either do or you don't, and I do. He said, okay, come with me. And he took him, this MBI student, took him back to the card school, which is the other half of the story. And there was a bouncer on the door and it was uh, underneath a particular warehouse where they were playing. And uh, this guy walked up to the bouncer and said, I believe you know Ray? The bouncer said, yeah, but who are you? He said, I'm with Ray. And he walked in and there's a staircase down into this musty room full of tables and cigarette smoke and a whole lot of undesirables there. And this student stood at the top of the staircase and he... He clapped his hands. Half the, uh, the audience reached for whatever they were keeping in their, their gun, thinking it was a police raid in their boots. And he says, I believe you know Ray. And everyone stopped. The whole room stopped and looked at him. 60 people. And he says, Ray's got something he wants to tell you. <laughs> right then and there. Go ahead, Ray. And Dad began to tell them that he had just got right with God. Well, the room went into hysterics and people started chucking cards at him and this sort of thing until a lone figure stood up in the back of the room. That man's name was Norman Gent. He had just won the Golden Gloves Boxing Championship two weekends earlier. Norm stood up and just said, I think we can bear to hear what Ray's got to say. Everyone, sure thing, Norm, yeah, right, whatever you say. And God's preached to a whole room of people who would never hear the gospel. From the mouth of a man who was not equivocating about the promise of God, but had trusted and put his whole life on that trust. He bet his house that moment and changed his whole life. And that plumber ended up a professor of physics at Monash University. That's what happens when people believe and take Jesus at his word. And that was what is happening here. Jesus putting it out to these people. And he doesn't just leave it there. He says, very truly, I tell you there is a time coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God And those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And the second point again, he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Don't be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. And those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. There is a resurrection day coming, and it's the same day as the judgment day. Jesus doesn't keep any fine print hidden from the customer. And neither should we as preachers. This is the nature of it. That Jesus is saying to these people, you know, he can sense that the boot is now on the other foot. That they came to arraign him, to prosecute him, and now he's prosecuting them. And he's basically saying, you know, the next time you hear my voice could be that day. And the question is, all are going to be raised. 
Guess who will do that? Moi. And all are going to be evaluated. And guess who's going to do that? Moi. Pretty powerful time. I've got to think to myself, because the next chapter, these people were gunning for a stoning, for a lynching, and the next chapter we read Jesus on a trip across a lake in Galilee. How come they didn't follow through? That's the question I've got to ask. It's because in front of them was one who was so sure of himself and something in them would have known that he wasn't without evidence. The evidence was also standing in front of them and they hesitated because they knew that the religion that they were involved in, they had invented. And that wasn't worth bidding your house on. Folks, that's where we sit today uh, as we uh, worship. You know, the critical thing in life, you cannot live this life until we resolved where you'll be in the next life. You cannot sit on the fence about this. You cannot say that's something I will resolve later. You cannot say, well, I'm just a little agnostic. I like Jesus, but I don't know. Folks, you will never be free from all that bedevils you and drags you down until... And you'll never be free of the fear of other human beings until you resolve the issue of where you're going to be in eternity. I've sat at the bedside of I don't know how many people having their last breath. And I can tell you there's only two sorts of experience that you can have. I do not want to ever again be at the bedside of someone who can barely talk or think and see in their eyes the fear of what is about to happen. But I want to be there those days when God's great saints are at peace over that issue. There's all a world of difference. I had the privilege of being at my grandmother's grave and at her last breath when we were expecting our first child. We went up to see her at the Baptist home in Kerrang to find that she'd been taken to hospital and she'd had cancer for I don't know how many years and, and now the morphine was just all she had to look forward to. I remember going into her, her room and there was a whole lot of family people there and some of them were sort of losing their heads and demanding more therapy and oh, it was an ugly scene. But I managed with my wife to go up to her bedside and I just wanted to tell her that I appreciated all those days at her house, at her farm. 
they meant something to me. She saw my wife's stomach and she said, how long to go? She was lucid. We said, any day now. <laughs> what are you going to call her? We said, Elizabeth. Oh, a little princess. And we are, I'm thinking, she's about to die. <laughs> and, and then she said, well, you know, I've got some dying to do, so I'd appreciate if you'd leave the room. Now, that's someone who's talking like she's on the way to another appointment. And death had no fear. I've got some dying to do, but there's more to come. Folks, that's how we're meant to be living, in the light of a certain hope that will sustain us and will put steel in our spine for those moments when we'd rather compromise. Trusting in that simple truth, nothing else. Let's leave it there this morning as you reflect on where you stand and the wellness of your faith. You you can't be certain of a religion you invent but you can bet your life on the one who rose the dead. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you, Father God, for this day where we come into your house to do this militant thing of listening for the voice of the God, our God of Lord, our Lord of Lords, through the barely adequate voice of humanity. But hear you, we do. And we just pray this day that you'd well in us a hope that is unshakable. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Sorry, we're going to sing now and stand and sing in response.